Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas. Welcome to a very special edition of Catch and Shoot 2.0. My name's Amberlynn, alongside with my co-host. His name is Otto Strong. Otto, what's going on, man? Oh, man, we had a fantastic night of basketball. We're going to get into it. Uh, it is Wednesday around midnight if you're here in the East. If you are not yet uh, here on the West Coast, it may be still too late night Tuesday. But either way, we had two huge games uh, that were on. Uh, we just saw the Denver Nuggets uh, take it to the Clippers, and they are going to advance to uh, meet the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, as well as, well as seeing game one of the, uh, of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Heat. Yeah, it was a great night of basketball. And we have a very special roundtable discussion with two great guests, one of which is Dave Wall. He's been a player, coach, and a general manager of the Los Angeles Clippers, a tough night for his Clippers. But he's also been a part of the NBA for nearly a half century even though, you know, he looks a little bit younger than just that. Yes, and our other guest is Steve Bullpet, who has covered the Celtics uh, since the mid-'80s, uh, and he, too, is very youthful-looking. Uh, so we're going to basically just kind of kick it around and talk and talk hoop for the, for the next, uh, I don't know, however long before we maybe fall asleep here in the East. We're going to cover, break it down for a whole bunch of angles. And so with that, let's just, uh, let's just get to it. So let's go with what we just witnessed. We, uh, we started the night with a... Clippers team that was up three games to well they had been up three games to one and I I, I mean I'm just going to toss it up who wants to jump in what 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 happened to the Clippers what happened to LA versus LA yeah I think I don't that was um, one of the things that everybody was waiting for high expectations you know uh, unfortunately instead of playing like at a sold out crowd in Staples it would be an empty crowd in Orlando but. Um, th- this was almost unbelievable to me. Having been with the Clippers, I, I really thought they were the best team uh, in the league. They had the best chance to win a title. They had acquired Kawhi. They had acquired Paul George. They had a real strong bench with, with Trez and Lou. Um, Patrick Beverly was there. They could become a great defensive team and still be a great offensive team. So it's almost unexplainable to me because usually when you build up a big lead and a team makes a comeback, they kind of come back and catch you. And then you battle it out to the end when you're at this level. But for the Clippers, they, they gave away 16 point leads and then lost by 16 or 18 points. So it, it, you'd watch the first half where they were making every shot, playing good defense, Denver couldn't make a shot. And then the script just got flipped. And it was just incredible to me that they lost three games in the most inexplicable fashion that I could imagine. David. Yeah, once once the ball started rolling, it was it was really hard, I think, for the for the, the Clippers to get their footing. Um, and this, and I don't mean to go way back in history. And actually, I don't look youthful. I am youthful. I started covering when I was seven. Um, <laughs> but uh, Dave, I think you might remember this. What this series reminded me of these last three games was 1975 Golden State in the finals, getting behind by double digits each game and coming back. I think they called it eight days in May. They swept the bullets. Um, and it was, you know, just that kind of thing where you had a team get on a roll. And I think it's easier to do that in Orlando because you've taken away a lot of the variables. The home crowd, like you were mentioning, this game would have been in Staples. Right. This was more pure basketball. And I just think that, that 
the the Clippers being the uh, favorites, you know, all of a sudden when the Nuggets would come back on them, they would tighten up a little bit like this is not supposed to be happening and they'd get away from their ball movement, player movement thing. And, um, you know, and all of a sudden it, that would play into the hands of Denver, which is still a very good team. That's a, a number three seed. And uh, as I mentioned on Twitter late tonight, I, last summer during summer league, um, I, I'm not a gambler. Uh, but I put down 20 bucks on the Nuggets because I figured every team, and just for the heck of it, I figured every team in the West is making big changes. Denver stayed essentially the same, and I think that will stand them well when the playoffs come and there, there'll be more familiarity. But it was crazy to watch. Well, one thing I definitely agree with you too, Steve, is I think when there's the weight of expectations, which for the Clippers had been, this is their year, this is the year they're going to be able to get a championship and change the whole dynamic of how people have viewed the Clippers. Though that weight, you could almost see it, I think, during some of the games as Denver started to come back. And Denver, on the other hand, was just playing free and easy. The, the expectations weren't there. They're, the expectations were they're going to be a good game, uh, team. They're going to give the Clippers a little run, but it's not really their year might be next year or the year after. And I think you could just see that. I, I think you could see the, the, the Nuggets having fun and the Clippers struggling to like enjoy this, to enjoy this challenge at times when the opponent was making a run at them. And one of the key players for Denver, Jokic, who the best part of this to me is that a wider audience is gonna to get to see just how wonderful a player Nikola Jokic is. But being one of the best players, his big thing is he moves the ball. He keeps it going. So that, again, uh, made things easier, I think, or, or played into uh, the, the Nuggets playing a smoother type of basketball. Well, one of the things that we've talked about before sometimes is when you have a great passer, and I think especially when he's at one of the big, the center, power forward kind of positions where you can run an offense through him in a lot of ways, he makes every other player on the floor a threat even if they can't create their own shot, because all they have to do is cut well, make a good back door. He's going to find them for layups. And all of a sudden, the defense has to worry about everybody instead of being able to focus on just the one or two great players. And with Jokic, I think guys just have to love playing with him because they know they can get wide open layups if they just keep moving without the ball when it goes into them. And not only layups, but in this three-point world we live in now, what you strive for is in-to-out offense where your three-point shooters are squared up, stepping into the shot, and that's what a Nikola Jokic gives you. Yeah, and sometimes it's so wide open, the guy can take a dribble, set himself. It's not like a rush shot where there's somebody really contesting your shot. And it, it, it's so much fun to watch him play because he's just at a different level. I mean, he's so far ahead of the next play. He's so far ahead of what the defense is doing that he's already like read the floor and knows what he wants to do. And he's just playing basketball. We see a lot of other big guys, the Joel Embiid's that are like, what am I supposed to be doing now? And I have to do this and that. Jokic is just playing the game and letting it flow through him. And it's beautiful to watch. Yeah, no matter where he is on the floor, you know, he'll, he's almost like a new center type position because he'll bring the ball up. He'll initiate the offense. He can run pick and rolls handling the ball. You know, he can go down on the box and play out of there. He can pick and pop and play from behind the three. He can, he can get the ball in the short roll at the foul line and play out of that, where some of the other guys like Embiid, it almost looks like he's trying to have to decide, well, should I go out and shoot three-pointers now, or should I go post up? Which play should I roll on? Jokic just plays, like you said. He just plays with a great feel for what the situation calls for. So Alan, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, how impressed were you guys with the play of Jamal Murray throughout this entire series and really throughout the first few rounds of these playoffs? It seems like if there's one player that has cemented himself among NBA All-Stars, or at least made a bigger name for himself throughout these playoffs. It's been the way Jamal Murray has played. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, clearly he's, I think he came into the league as a good shooter. And now as it's gone on, he's found out where to get his shot. And again, playing with Jokic, um, you know, that, that's again, one of the reasons why I said, heck, I, you know, let's give the Nuggets a shot here. 
Um, like I, I mentioned on Twitter, prior to this, my gambling had a, essentially been limited to flying U.S. Air on occasion. But, um, you know, uh, you're right. Here's a guy that it's not enough to just be a good shooter. It's, you have to know where your shot's going to be and be able to find it. What I like that he did, too, was, you know, he added, uh, I think they said 12 pounds over the time off. Um, I think he knew he had to get stronger uh, to be able to take some of the hits on drives. And uh, I thought in the, the first couple games with the Clippers, he, he looked a little hesitant. Um, you know, he had Kawhi on him. He had PG on him. He had Beverly on him. I mean, those are three terrific defenders. And I don't think he'd seen that kind of defender in the earlier series. So I thought it took him a couple games to figure out, I've got to play a little faster. I've got to make my moves a little quicker. I can't hesitate thinking about coming off a pick and roll, what I'm going to do. I got to make a decision and do it. And I thought once he started to figure out some of those things, I thought he played a little quicker. And I thought that was where he started to play fearless because he was taking shots. He's got that little one-legged, almost like Jokic at times. I thought he was hitting shots that, you know, were like, okay, he's on a roll now. Dave, how, do, how are these guys going to match up with the Lakers? Um, you know, I, I almost look at it the other way. It's, it's, to me, the Lakers have two guys like Kawhi and Paul George. They have Anthony Davis and they have LeBron, two tremendous players. After that, the rest of the guys on their team are a little bit up and down as to the contributions they make. Pope can have a good game. Danny Green can shoot the ball. You got Caruso, Morris occasionally. I don't think that it's set like which are the next couple guys that are going to give you big games. And it's a little bit like Denver. Porter is probably their next best scorer. I, I almost look at it like who are the Lakers going to put on, on people? Because the AD-Jokic um, matchup could be kind of fun if Frank Vogel decides to go back big and start, you know, his bigger lineup and move AD back to like a power forward position that's going to change some things. So I, I think it's going to be interesting how the two coaches start to see the matchups in game one and see how they fare from there. Yeah, and you've got to add in playoff Rondo, which right. is different than regular season Rondo. Um, and I, I think in this series, the Lakers, if they have trouble, it could be because they miss an Avery Bradley. Yeah. I think he's a guy that that, uh, that could help them in this series. Um, but um, you know, I think this probably is where my $20 bet goes to die. But, uh, you know, I, I still think that, that the, I think the Lakers, with some fast breaks, if they can get in transition a little bit, get Kuzma into the game that way, uh, they can loosen things up. And, of course, LeBron's just a, a huge capital X factor. Yeah, I, you, you can never – figure out what LeBron's going to come out of the game with. Is it just going to be scoring one night? Is it going to be assists and some scoring? Is it going to be some defense? Uh, I think the interesting matchup is going to be what AD contributes uh, versus what Jokic contributes because the Clippers didn't have that kind of big guy. And so it's going to be interesting how Mike Malone decides to play some things. And I also think it's going to be interesting you know, how they're going to play a lot of the cutters because Denver's got a lot of confidence now. I think that they really feel like even if the Lakers get off to 15 or 16 point leads, oh, we can come back from that. This is what we do. So I, I think this is going to be a very interesting series. And again, no home court, no travel. Everybody's going to be a little rested. So um, it's going to be, I'm, I'm excited to watch that first game. Well, when you look at that um, matchup specifically between Jokic and AD, what are some things that Jokic has to do to win that battle? I mean, AD is such a different player than the way Jokic likes to play. I, I think yeah. I think AD has. I think Jokic has to occupy uh, Anthony Davis. I think he has to when when the Nuggets have the ball, uh, Jokic has to really make Anthony Davis work. Uh, and I think that that could have effects, positive effects for the Nuggets at the other end of the floor. So I, I think that would be the huge part that I'd look at. Yeah, and what happens too, and, and again, without trying to jump ahead, is let's say he can post up AD and pick up a quick foul or two. Uh, does Frank decide, now I'm going to double Jokic because I, I he's hurting McGee or whatever, and now all of a sudden you're back in that situation. You're doubling Jokic, which really opens up a lot of other players for Denver. So I, th I think Jokic has to really be 
um, not to put offensive minded to score as much, but I think the word Steve used occupy is really good. He's going to back down. He's going to look over the floor. If he has those little opportunities to spin off or throw the little crazy hook he throws up, he's got to take those because I think he's got to put pressure on AD to, to occupy him. So AD can't go around looking, oh, I'm going to go help and block a shot here, help there. So um, that's one of that, that matchup I think is really going to be interesting. What about from the rest standpoint? So the Lakers obviously been off for a number of days. Uh, uh, you know, Nuggets had a, had a grueling you know, seven, seven games in terms of you know, playing the last three uh, you know, uh, elimination games. Um, kind of some, from, a, from a physical and mental standpoint, how do you think the, the, that's going to wear on Denver going into a game one? Well, I think one thing, it'll wear better than it used to if they were actually playing at the arenas, because what would have happened would have been, you know, Denver would have gotten on a flight tonight, probably, or if they were at home for this game, seventh game was probably was going to go to the Clippers. So they'd yeah. be in LA already. So the first game might not be bad. They just might stay there. Um, the travel is usually what, you know, you're getting in at three in the morning or something, then you're getting up the next day. I think one of the benefits for a lot of the teams there was no travel, you know, there was no home court advantage, and which I think for some of the teams that have great home court advantages like Boston and Denver and some of the others, it probably hurt them a little bit. Although D Denver, you didn't know it by the way this series went. Um, but I, I think the, the Nuggets have gone this way for their last couple of series. So to them, it's like, okay, I'll get a day's rest and we'll go right back at it. We're in a little bit of a groove. The Lakers may take a half to get their groove back. Yeah, I, th I think that it doesn't matter in, down here. It, you know, it's like baseball. The momentum is the next day starting pitcher. We'll see how the teams come out in the first quarter um, in the next game, and, and that'll be really what decides, you know, how, how the series, what character it takes at the start and where it goes from there. Do teams make adjustments? If the uh, Nuggets get, a, you know, a little bit nervous at first, as they did against the Clippers, do they get out of it quickly? Um, yeah, I, I don't think that uh, the rest versus rust thing is, is even really an issue in these, in these games down there. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to watch moving forward. Before we pivot and start talking about the Eastern Conference, because we did get a tremendous game one between the Heat and the Celtics tonight, let's backtrack and talk about the Clippers just one last time. Clippers now enter an NBA offseason in which, you know, it comes off a of summer where they brought in two big dynamic players Things never really seemed to click for them in the bubble. What was the difference between the regular season Clippers that we saw, which seemed to have so much going for them and so much momentum? After the four-month layoff, you get the bubble Clippers. What was the biggest difference of what you guys saw in the playoffs from them? I just, I just thought a little bit of it was that their bench during the regular season, especially Lou and Trez, really were terrific. Um, they were, I think, the best bench or the bench that scored the most during the regular season before the, the end came. I think when they came back, you know, Lou had an issue. Trez had an issue. Death in the family both had deaths. Um, Patrick Beverly missed a little bit. I, I, I think that they didn't pick up that same kind of, um, kind of vibe that they'd had before because I think Lou and, and Trez were averaging 18 points each. That was 36 points from them off the bench. And you could see through this series, they like Lou, I think, shot something like about four from 20 his last two games. You know, Trez was kind of inconsistent, even though he'd have a little stretch. And I thought that really hurt them because Doc used his bench well during the regular season. And he could always count if Kawhi was having a bad game or PG or someone needed a rest. He could go to that bench and they could, they could take over a game. And I, I think, too, that you know, there's regular season basketball and playoff basketball. And at times, they can seem like entirely different sports. Um, I just regular season, you can throw your bench at somebody. In the playoffs, you know it's you're not going to be getting that. Oh, we're playing three games in you know five nights now. I guess rarely three and four. But I, I just think that now it's it's where it becomes more of a possession game. That uh, there's more focus on stuff, and you don't get you to throw your bench out there and have them get on runs as easily as you did. Because if that starts to happen, your opponent is bringing in its uh, first team faster and they, you know, they'll just live with longer minutes, especially now in this bubble where without travel, there's less wear and tear. And you saw in the 
I, the series I watch closely, the Boston-Toronto series, and again tonight, guys are running, uh, teams are running with their starters, their regulars, uh, heavier minutes than they would in a regular season. So my question is this. At the top of the show, we talked about an L.A. versus L.A. Final West Finals. Uh, obviously, we didn't get that. So clearly, the Clippers thought that they were at least going to make the Western Conference Finals, and you would hope that they would go beyond that. So is Doc in any trouble? Oh, I don't. I don't think so. I would be really surprised. I mean, I think Doc has proven himself to be one of the top coaches in the league. Um, I don't think you're going to make a decision on him in this year. This was the first year they had this team together, as much as they had terrific potential. Um, so I, I would be very surprised um, if uh, they were to do anything with Doc. And if they did, Doc would get scooped up and right away, or he'd do TV for a year and then get. Uh, scooped up as a coach. I, I think he's held in very, very high regard, not only as, as just from the coaching side, but from the relationship side. I think he's he's one of the coaches that he's very mature about how he deals with players. I think the players really appreciate that. And I've, I've worked with him a long time over his career. Um, he makes it about life as much as basketball. And I think if you look at a lot of the players who've played for him, a lot of them still stay in touch with him because they enjoyed um, you know, how he coached them and how he talked to them and, and how he, he let them be grown men. Yeah, I, I think one of the worst things the Clippers could do right now would be to, to make, to even consider, but to, but to make major changes, to think this is something they have to, you know, uh, take the scalpel to. Um, it's, it reminds me of uh, before game seven of the 2000 NBA, uh, 2010, finals. Uh, Celtics were in LA <clears throat> and I was just sitting, happened to be sitting courtside with Ainge, Danny Ainge about a few hours before the game, well before the game. And he said, you know what's funny, he goes, in a few hours from now or you know, several hours from now, one team's going to have won this game, one team's going to have lost. The team that wins, everyone's going to say, well, they did everything right. And the team that loses the game well, they've got to really start looking at, at, take a hard look at what they did, that, like a hard look at their roster and maybe change a bunch of things. He goes, and we're sitting this close to game time and we don't know which team is going to be which. So that just kind of shows the fallacy of, you know, what one game or even one series uh, can do can, to force teams to, you know, uh, overcorrect uh, as they try to steer out of a, a brief skid. Yeah, it's the, the worst thing you can ever do is overreact to a situation. And even in a series that was as closely contested as this Clippers and Nuggets one, and hopefully we get an East or an equally as good um, Western Conference final between the Lakers and the Nuggets. Well, let's go ahead and talk about what happened in the Eastern Conference today. I thought we got a very good game one between the Celtics as well as the Heat. One that went to overtime came down to a last second block by Bam Adebayo. I guess, Steve, let's start with you, your initial reactions to this game and what the Celtics were able to do and ultimately what the Heat did right. Well, there, there were some potholes for the Celtics in this series, and I think they stepped into pretty much all of them. Um, I was on a, a different podcast last night. Forgive me, guys. I feel so dirty. Um, <laughs> but, but we were talking about, um, you know, what could happen in this. I, I basically said, if both teams play to their max, I think the Celtics win this series. But the keys are they had to make sure that they uh, pressured the ball, get out to shooters, which was an issue for them. And then really a key was offensively, not stagnate. You had to move the basketball, uh, you know, cuts, all these things. And I think it was amazing toward the end that the Celtics were in it, considering how many times they went ISO. Guys like uh, uh, Tatum, he made some shots, but that kind of basketball wasn't going it, it to, it didn't keep guys ready. It didn't allow them to get easy shots. When they did move the ball, which was a, a, on a, quite a few occasions tonight, they got great looks, and that's there for them. If you if you move the ball and you cut, um, you know that that works. At the end of regulation, Celtics, after Marcus Smart drew the foul, the uh, dead ball foul, uh, Tatum hits the free throw. Celtics get the ball, tie score. They're going to win it or lose it here. 
and you wind up with a 25, 26 foot three pointer, that makes no sense. There was no, no body movement, no cutting. Uh, you know, if, if there's some, some movement and Tatum can get toward the basket, now you've, instead of just whether the three goes in or out, you've increased the number of opportunities you have to score. You know, he can uh, score on a drive. It can be tipped in. He can get fouled and go to the free throw line. But when you just took the three at the buzzer, it was either in or out. And, and that was your, you, you took away so many, so much, uh, well, about two thirds of your opportunities to win the game. Yeah, I thought another, there were a couple other interesting things. I, I thought when the Celtics got off to a really good start, uh, at some point, um, Miami started to play some zone. And I think it really bothered Boston. You know, when you start to play zone, the team starts to think, well, which offense are we running? Are we running a zone offense? Are we just going to run our regular offense? And I thought it took away from some high pick and rolls because now you don't have a big guy up there. You got the two guards. So it took Kemba out of some high pick and rolls that later when they played man to man, he could do a little more. So they, put the, they brought the zone out on and off. And I thought it really kind of allowed them to get back in it because Boston started to miss a bunch of shots. Drogic started pushing the pace. They got a couple coast-to-coast -coast layups. Another one, all of a sudden, Miami starts pushing the ball before Boston could get their defense set. I thought that's what got Miami back in the game. And they were getting back in the game without Butler really scoring. I mean, Jimmy wasn't really much of an impact at all in the beginning. And again, they have a big guy who's not in Jokic's class yet, but Adebayo did a really nice job with a couple assists. I think he had four or five assists. And I just thought Miami started doing more ball movement and everything. And Hero just had, a, he almost had a triple-double uh, that almost probably went unnoticed because he wasn't shooting the ball well till the very end. So I, I thought it was one of those games went right down to the wire again. I think this is what's going to happen with these two teams. Well, the Celtics were terrible in getting back in transition defense. And as far as playing against the zone, they, they saw a lot of zone against Toronto. Right. And again, even against a zone, you have to move. You have to cut through. And that, I mean, even a zone will still give up stuff inside because it, it, sometimes it can be easier to, to get better buckets or finishes um, because, the, you know, it, when you're playing man, at least you know who you've got. And if there's a switch, there's a switch. But in a zone, you know, if there's two guys running at one, who does he take? Um, and, you know, Guys like Tatum and Brown can really score well. They can score well uh, in ISO situations and all that stuff, but each is infinitely better as a finisher. So when you get movement and allow, you know, the quick pass for the, the layup, and if they're finishing without dribbles, if they're finishing with just off of one dribble, that changes things uh, dramatically. But, you know, they – the zone shouldn't have spooked the Celtics. They saw enough of it against Toronto that they should have been ready for that. But you had times where guys were like, okay, I've got a little bit of an opening here. I'm going to, I'm going to hoist this three. And even though they hit some, it, I think that playing that way really kind of was, was suicidal for them. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I could. Oh, I'm sorry, Otto. I was just going to do one thing. that What happens in the zone sometimes is open threes come up a lot sooner. And so what happens is sometimes a player, they'll make one pass or, you know, the, everybody's still on the perimeter and a guy will get an open three and he'll just shoot it. And they miss that one. They come down one or two passes, boom. And so there's no cutting. There's really not like a lot of ball movement like Steve is talking about to attack the zone. It's more like, wow, they're giving us open threes. We got to take these. And if you're making them, it's one thing you get the people out of the zone right away. But if you're not, all of a sudden the other team's off to the races, which is what I thought happened tonight a little bit. And if you're not making them, the, the, the rebounds of, of missed threes are long rebounds, which are de facto outlet passes. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're not getting back on defense, like the Celtics weren't much of the night, that's you know just compounding the error. Steve, I want to go back to that to what you were talking about. The last, what was I guess the last shot of regulation? It just feels like that that hero ball mentality. It just seems like we can't get past that. We see, we we know that hero ball is a bad thing, and yet in the la in the closing seconds, it always seems to to go down to the lowest common denominator, and that's what happens. But uh, so from one hero to another, Tyler Hero. I know we talked about him a little bit before, but 
a rookie coming up huge in, a, in an Eastern Conference Finals game one. I mean, are you, are you surprised by what he was able to do? Or you, you think that, uh, uh, that he will be able to continue that style, you know, that level of, of, of efficiency uh, as we go through the series? Yeah, I think the only surprise, well, look, for a guy like that, the, the big thing that would stand out is a rookie continuing to shoot after he's missed a few. And that means that he's got confidence and it's not just self-confidence, it's confidence that's been given to him by his coach, by his teammates. Hey, we want you to keep shooting these. If anything, I think game two can be more difficult for the Celtics because their other, one of their other big outside shooters, Duncan Robinson, had foul trouble and really never found himself in this game. And I expect him to be much better in game two, uh, much more of a threat. So I think that could be, you know, a, another issue there. Um, but yeah, I, that would stand out to me among, as far as hero goes, but to the Celtics, that kind of hero ball, if you recall two years ago, they got to the conference finals against the, the Cavaliers. They had Cleveland on their own floor, excuse me, on the Celtics own floor in Boston. And instead of, you know, continuing to move the ball, they were, you know, guys, I'm going to win it now. Terry Rozier, I'm going to fire it up. Jalen Brown, I'm going to fire it up. Tatum, I'm going to fire it up. And they lost a game where I think the Cavaliers were, were giving them the game and the Celtics just wouldn't take it. Um, so that, that, kind of, that kind of game, they should know better. But like you said, you get guys that are competitive and it's like, oh, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to get this. I'm going to break us out of this slump by hitting this shot. But if it's early in the shot clock, it pulls you out of what you want to do. You don't have floor balance. You're not back as quickly you know, snowballs. You know, one of the things too is I like to look at um, the efficiency some guys are playing with. And at, there was one point where Crowder had uh, 10 points in 13 minutes and Dragic had 16 points in 16 minutes. So when you look at that, these two guys scored 26 points in 29 minutes. I mean, that's really efficient basketball. And now you're not talking about the top two scores on, on the team all the time, like elite all-star players. You're talking about guys who just are hard workers, play hard. They're going to they're gonna do what they do and, and on the floor. And if you looked on the other end, you had Brown, who um, Steve has talked about, and Kemba. At that point, I think we're four for 16. So I, I think efficiency is going to affect both these teams because both these teams have guys who can score, especially the Celtics. I mean, they they have any of their starters could probably put 30 points on the board on a given night, but it's how you get those 30 points too. And, and the efficiency you play with. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. You know, the heat were so efficient on so many different, so many different levels tonight. I mean, you look at their starters, four of their five starters were in double figures, three of which were above 20 points. Goran Dragic, I thought was fantastic. He led the way with 29 points. If you're, Boston, and you're looking at ways in which you contain him moving forward because once Dragic gets going and he starts running downhill, he is a very tough cover. How does Marcus Smart do a better job containing him in game two? Well, I'm not sure. Um, I was just going to say, I, I don't think it's just up to Marcus. They switch a lot, you know, so he can have a bunch, but I thought he had six points early, which got them running just because he went coast to coast for layups. And at that point, you're really talking about your whole defensive transition as a team. You got to get back early. You got to build a wall. You can't do what we we call buddy run. And Steve knows what I'm talking about, where you're jogging back and you look behind you and go, okay, the guy I'm playing is behind me. I'm good, even though the ball's ahead of you. So I, I think at that point, when you know there's a guy who wants to play at a faster pace, that he's much more effective at a faster pace. A lot of that falls on your whole team to get back, build that wall where you cut off those drives and force them more into a half-court game. You got to pressure the ball. Um, you know that's you know, and I don't think Marcus is the guy that's going to be necessarily on Dragic to start a possession. But whoever's in the vicinity has got to pressure the ball. You've got to make it hard for the uh, the Heat to get into its offense because they can score quickly and they've got some very good, no conscience three point shooters. And, and they don't need to necessarily make wide passes where you can get into a passing lane, you know, uh, tip it, go the other, go the other way. They'll score off quick dribble handoffs. 
where the guy will just fire away, just run behind the pick and fire away slightly off balance or whatever, because that for them is a good shot because they're, that's what they're used to. That's how they, that's what they make. I thought the Celtics in the, when they did play half court against, uh, against Miami tonight, forced them into some bad shots. Uh, but again, too much was uh, in transition where they either have numbers on you or they're, they're throwing secondary and, and the pass and the second guy is a little bit too slow defensively or uh, a half step behind and, and that's all it takes. And in the other part we, that I was discussing before the series started is you, you can't allow uh, yourself to get into a game in the last couple of minutes where Jimmy Butler can beat you by himself because that's what will happen. And I think as you look to the West, it's going to be the same deal with uh, Denver and the Lakers. You can't get into a situation where LeBron can beat you in the last couple of minutes by himself because he will do it. What about, uh, so Gordon Hayward, he hadn't played in a month, basically. Uh, he was ruled out for game one, so obviously didn't, didn't dress, didn't play. So are, the, are we looking at a, a situation where the, he's being rushed back? I don't know if rushed is the right word necessarily, but is, is, is there more pressure on him to come back to, because you don't want to go down 2-0 to this, to this Miami club. That's one thing, you, you know you don't want that. Well, um, the Celtics, by the way, this, in, in this uh, last two series, have, have lost every game at home and won every game on the road. Um, so I think they're just waiting to get to Miami. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that they're not going to rush uh, Hayward back, but they would love to have him because uh, you mentioned efficiency before, Aaron, uh, or Dave. Um, that's what uh, Gordon Hayward does. If you people look at him around here, especially around Boston, they'll say, well, look at his numbers. They're not that good. They're paying him all this money. It's like, no, no, his numbers are incredible. When you look at what he scores relative to his usage rate, and you also have to look at what he does for other people. When he's on the, on the floor, the ball is not sticking in his hands. It moves. Sometimes to his detriment, as we saw like last season, he make the pass and cut and wouldn't see it again for a week. Um, but now this team, you know, he's a guy that's a facilitator and kind of promotes the, the type of basketball that they need. And what he does is, you know, I think you'd see him get a lot of semi ogelays minutes in there. I'm not sure if he comes off the bench when he does come back or if he starts again, but he just stretches out the good. Um, you know, he, he gives you another guy that, that has to be guarded. Uh, they, they have to make sure they honor him on the perimeter. And when he does get it there, um, he's either got his shot or else the fake, and he can, uh, you know, go, back, go buy a guy who's doing a, a closeout on him and move it. So um, I, I just think he plays – his game is the style the Celtics need. But – Who's to say how he'll come back based on the injury, based on some rust, based on joining a team that has done pretty well in his absence? Um, you know, will it alter anything with, with, uh, with how they play? Yeah, and, and you don't know how much he's been able to do um, since his injury either, even with the rehab in terms of basketball, not just his physical stuff. And I always think when you try and rush a guy back, it, it just never works out well because the downside is if the player doesn't play well, you know, he catches a lot of media flack for, for not performing well. Um, then it turns out that he, he was still somewhat injured or not 100%. The, the disrespect or the, I should say, the mistrust, uh, you know, grows between he and the organization. Um, you, you can remember the the flare-up that KD had with everybody when they started saying, oh, the Warriors rushed him back. Um, so I, I think Boston's going to try and bring him back when he's ready, when they think he can get on the floor and contribute to the team. But I agree with Steve. Uh, you could see tonight there were times Brad could have used him in the game if, if Gordon was ready to play, because I think he's just another really multi-talented player who can facilitate, who can shoot you know, knows how to play, high basketball IQ, and you can always use a player like that, especially in the playoffs. What's interesting, though, is, is uh, 
when a guy comes back from injury, you expect that, that he's coming back and it's the guy that you saw before who's coming back. And usually it's not that guy specifically. It's a version of that guy, uh, something lesser, uh, to what degree you don't know, but he's probably not gonna come back and be right in stride and in sync the way he was before. Um, the other interesting part about this, and I've mentioned it before, is that because you've got the, the Brad Stevens, uh, Gordon Hayward, Butler thing, that if the Celtics lose this series and Gordon Hayward does come back, however Brad handles Gordon Hayward, to some people, uh, it's going to be wrong, no matter which way he does it, whether he plays him a lot or he played him too much. He didn't play him enough. Whatever he did, this is like gonna, if the Celtics don't win this series and Gordon Hayward comes back, Brad's handling of Hayward is a, an entirely no-win situation. Does Boston have enough firepower to win this series without him? Sure. They've got more – I believe they've got more scorers – uh, maybe not as many perimeter uh, people as, as, or solid perimeter people, three-pointers, but maybe they do that too, actually, when you think about um, uh, Jalen Brown's ability to hit the three, certainly Tatum. We haven't, we've seen a very cold Kemba Walker, but, um, you know, they've got, I think they've got plenty of guys that can hit that shot uh, that can, that can give you that firepower and, you know, but, do they play in a way that promotes them to get the best out of them? Dave, I'm not sure how you see it. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties is I don't know that you can, you can just shoot threes and rely on those all the time. What, what I like is when teams start to attack the rim. You know, now look, Adebayo is a, a great shot blocker. We saw that at the end tonight. But I do think there's got to be a healthy mixture. And I like to see that with guys like Tatum and Brown, where it's not just the first open jumper. I'm going to take that all the time. I've got a guy running at me. I can break him down, attack the rim, because I, I think as we even saw in the Denver Clipper game, um, the quarter in the game, uh, game before this one, I think, I think Denver shot 17 foul shots or something like that in the third quarter. And they didn't make a hoop. They just shot 17 foul shots, and now Boston, I mean, the, the Clippers were taking the ball out of bounds every time. It changed their whole pace of the game. So I'd like to see Boston be able to find that balance where their guys who can put the ball on the ground are getting to the foul line. It, it allows them to score, slows the pace of the other team. Miami doesn't get to push the ball off a missed long jumper because I, I think that can give them a little edge. When you've got a defensive presence like an Adebayo, you can you still attack that guy because if he come if you get a step on your man and you're driving at Adebayo, he has to help. There's the laydown, you know. There's the laydown to to Tice for an easy bucket. Um, so I, I totally agree with Dave that the Celtics did not attack the paint enough. And again, you sometimes you attack to hopefully to to score, hopefully to to commit to the goal. But uh, just attacking the paint and the pass out to squared up shooters, you know, that's, that's what you're looking for as well. You know, what's interesting too sometimes is the, the three-point distance, there are a lot of guys, Tatum is one of them, and certainly there's others, Lillard and a bunch of other guys. Their range is really four or five feet beyond the three-point line. So when they get to there, if that defender is sitting back at the three-point line, they figure, hey, I can, I can take this. This is my shot. I'm only 29 feet out or 30 feet out. And it's very enticing. And I think you can get caught up in that, especially Tatum made one or two tonight. And you're like, whoa, I'm on a roll, man. I can take the 30-footer and accomplish the same thing. And I think sometimes you have to fight that a little bit because you're not going to continue to shoot great like that through an entire series. But you can keep everybody off balance if you can put the ball on the floor create an ability to attack the rim. And like Steve said, you draw it. One of the things Tice does great, he's got great hands and he finishes well um, when a big guy goes to leave and help. So I, again, I'd like to see that versatility more in their offense from some of their guys. Dave, when, when you see how important uh, the three-pointer has become, do you ever think back to the, the fact that Pete Maravich is still the, the leading scorer in college history? 
without the three and what pistol would have done to this NBA? Well, I want to, where, where you can't hand check and all that. Right. I want to go back just uh, historically for a second, because I was coaching when the three point came into existence. I think it was uh, 79, 80 was the first season. Um, coaches didn't know what to do with it. You literally waited till the end of a game. And if you were down three, you put in your quote, three point shooter and he fired a shot either to hopefully tie it up or if you're down two, maybe to win it. The league as a whole took 5,000 threes. I think it averaged 2.8 threes a team. So if, if you fast forward to at least at the end of last year, I think the league took something like 77,000 threes. I think every team was uh, averaging at least 30. And we had one game last, last year um, where I think the Knicks in Houston took 104 threes. Houston took 70, and I think the Knicks took 34. So the question I, I get to is, this keeps continuing. I mean, they, they had another five or six or 8,000 threes every season. Does there get to be a point where teams are averaging 40, 50, 60 threes a game in the next five years, where it's no longer that, that much fun to watch? You know, it's one or two dribbles over half, one pass, and somebody hoists up a three. But the other thing that they're doing is every kid that's now 9, 10, 11 that's starting to play basketball looks at Lillard, looks at Steph Curry, looks at some of these guys and say, I don't have to grow to be 6'8". I can learn how to handle and shoot threes. And that whole group is going to come in and they're going to be as good shooters or better than the ones now. You're going to have the tall gangly kids who look at Jokic and go, you know what? I can be that kind of guy. So it's interesting how some of the things that are developing and the trends that are going may influence generations who are only like 9, 10, and 11, 12 years old right now. Dave, anybody remember who, uh, who hit the first NBA three-pointer? Um, Chris Ford, I think. Bingo. Yeah. You win nothing. <laughs> Why don't you give him that $20 that you were talking about earlier? <laughs> All right, so, so let's get to, let's, uh, we're going to pivot to predictions, and then we're going to wrap up. So who do we like? West, who's going to emerge from the West? Who's going to emerge from the East? Um, I'll go ahead and start with that one. I, I think the Lakers come out of this. I think it's going to be another hard fourth series. Uh, I just think probably LeBron turns out to be the difference. Um, I think it could go six or seven games. Um, but I think the Lakers um, definitely come out of the, of the West. Um, in the East, boy, this is a tough one. I, I think this is going to be such a close series, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Boston. I think Boston is going to end up figuring it out um, in the end. Yeah, I, th I think the glass slipper falls off the Nuggets here. Um, and in the East, uh, I, I won't discount the Celtics' ability to screw it up, but the only way I've ever predicted anything is to look at, like I said earlier, uh, each team and say, if they play to their max, who wins? Um, and I think if, if both teams play the way they're best capable, I still think the Celtics win that series. But, um, you know, as we know, teams don't always play their best, and it's sometimes, uh, you know, will over skill sometimes. And uh, I think that could happen in this series easily. I think Miami, uh, the Celtics have shown they, they allow games to stay close when they shouldn't, and uh, that's going to bite them. And it, it certainly can here. I would not be surprised at all if Miami took this in six, even. Mm, wow. Well, I'm going to go Lakers and Miami. For, for an interesting uh, finals. Uh, and Aaron, what, what are you thinking? I just think it's going to be a combination of the rest that the Lakers have had and then just these winner-take-all games that the Nuggets have kind of been forced to play in these last few rounds, not just this one, also against the Jazz. I think that eventually catches up to them. But I, I think what I'm really excited about is that the world gets to see Jokic on a bigger stage and they get to see him and Jamal Murray do their thing. Out of the East, I have a really hard time going against Jimmy Butler and his alpha dog mentality and just the way that Heat team seems to be playing. I mean, it was no small feat to take down that Bucks team and then to take a game one against the Celtics. So I have a Lakers and Heat matchup with, you know, I'm just going to say it, LeBron taking down his former employer in the Heat in the finals. So that's, mm. that's just my take. Sorry, guys. I don't know if that's the right take. I don't know if it's the wrong take, but it's what I'm going with. 
You've got some serious former employer situations there. <laughs> yeah, if it ended up Boston and the Lakers, I'd want to ring with each franchise. I don't know who I root for at that point. <laughs> that was dope. Well, Dave Wall, Steve Bulpet, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was a, a really a special edition of Catch and Shoot 2.0, the midnight edition, some might say. Um, but anyway, we're, we're winding it down here, folks. So uh, again, want to thank Dave and Steve for their insights and for staying up late on this Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on where you are. I uh, want to thank, give thanks to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, as well as our editor, Tom Phillip. Please check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. This week, The Mike Wise Show features our friend Cassidy Hubberth of ESPN. She's been killing it on the sidelines down in Orlando, and she has great insight on the bubble culture. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams has a new college hoop show each Tuesday. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure have a new show each Thursday. BJ Armstrong is back with Eric Newman on Pure Hoops Podcast, which drops every Friday. And Aaron and me will be back next Wednesday with a brand new edition of Catch and Shoot 2.0. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. And just a reminder, friends, the COVID-19 pandemic is still with us. So please keep all your various medical professionals and essential workers in your thoughts. They are today's superheroes. Continue to maintain social distancing, wash your hands, wear that mask to protect yourself, myself, Otto, and others, and treat everyone around you like a cherished friend or teammate. And please keep working for social justice with our fellow citizens and all races and religions who are striving for a more inclusive society. And if you like Catch and Shoot 2.0, please subscribe, listen, review us. And if you want, leave a five-star rating. It would mean a lot to myself and Otto. But until we meet again, enjoy the conference finals, and we'll see you guys next week. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.